0: I'm glad to see you. Hope you're doing well. I'm very excited that you weathered the noaic conditions to be here today. Um, and I want to tell you, uh, where, where do we start when we talk about this kind of stuff? I, I guess I have to start in the sixth grade because uh, I grew up and uh, just because of the nature of my family, we, we moved uh, several times. So, And it was kind of a weird thing how it went, but uh, just in the several times that I moved, uh, I went second grade, fourth grade, sixth grade, all different schools. But the weird part of second, fourth, and sixth grade being all different schools is that even though they were different schools in different cities, I had a, um, my second, fourth, and sixth grade teachers. Jesus is coming back, all right? So, yeah, with the clouds of heaven, the Bible says. So it could be right now and uh so uh but that's a good ending right there if i could have lord could we do that at the end that'd be awesome and then maybe like an explosion or maybe not and all right confetti anyway um so yeah i didn't do this in the first service um so anyway uh moved around a lot second fourth sixth grade different schools different teachers but all of them second fourth sixth grade teacher all named mrs roach very bizarre. It's always bugged me. Um, but my sixth grade Mrs. Roach teacher, uh, she, on the first day of school, she had us bring our math books to the front, and she brought out the biggest stapler I've ever seen in my life before or since that time. And she started stapling the last fifty pages of our books completely shut. And I, I, I was afraid to ask because I, that was, it was a Catholic school, and, you know, you ask questions about staplers, you end up getting stapled. So, Uh, so I, but anyway, somebody musters up the courage and says, Mrs. Roach, why are you stapling all of our books shut? And, and, uh, and she said, because all of the answers to all of of the questions are in the back of the book. And, uh, that was an incredible thought to me, even as, as a young kid in the sixth grade, that all of my math questions, I was walking around with all the answers to the math questions in, in the book. And, um, and, and I'm very grateful to God for staple removers because that's how I passed the sixth grade. Um. But I, I became a Christian, and I realized that Mrs. Roach was teaching me something about the Bible, too, that the answers are found in the book as well. Not just the answers to my life personally, which is true as well, but the answers to all of life's biggest questions, the world's problems are found uh, in the book. Because what it seems like is that the world is getting worse day by day. And, and, um, but I want to give you a little bit of a spoiler alert. It's going to continue to get worse. But guess what? It's going to continue to get worse, but Jesus is coming back, and he wins in the end. So that's, you know, that's, that's what happens at the end of the story. And um, so what I want to do in today's message is, and, and, and I'm going to tell you, I, I want to talk about what's happening in the world. I, I want to talk about uh, how it relates to Bible prophecy and all that. And there are going to be moments uh, that, are, that seem extremely technical. So if you'll hang in there with me, there's, you know, because depending on your level of interest, uh, and would be like, I just wish he would tell a funny story about his kids. You know, you're gonna, you might be thinking that at one point. Um, and it's like, but instead he's talking about something that happens, you know, some prophecy from a thousand years ago or whatever or more. But uh, we're going to do, do that. And, uh, but I want to say a couple of things before we get started that I think are important to note. Number one, I'm not making any predictions today. Um, if you want football predictions, I can give you those. But I'm not making any Bible predictions today. Um, you know, uh, I know Jesus is coming back. I don't know when he's coming back. And uh, anybody who tells you they know the exact day that Jesus is coming back is a kook. And you shouldn't listen to them uh, because they have problems. And there was, you know, I mean, because that stuff has been going around forever. You know, that people have been making their predictions about when Jesus is coming back, at what day, at what moment, and all this. And they always end up being wrong. Because Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. And so when people show up and say, I know the day or the hour, it's like, well, Jesus ain't lying, so you probably are, so we're not going to listen to you. And and, and it's like, you know, I think some of these people are well-meaning. You know, a couple years ago, um, I guess it was, what, about two and a half years ago or so, Harold Camping uh, made these predictions. He's been making predictions all throughout the years um, about, you know, when's the rapture going to happen? When's Jesus coming back? And he said that it was going to be May 21st of 2011. And of course, as we're here, so it didn't happen and uh i you know i heard this somebody saw him afterwards he looked really sad and someone went up to him and said hey man cheer up whatever it is man it's not the end of the world and uh which i guess made him feel worse and um so but the thing is is that while no man knows the day or the hour the apostle paul taught us in the book of first thessalonians that when it comes to times and seasons we can understand we can know that there are times and seasons. You know, you can look at it. I know it's hard for us to think about that because we live in Florida, because we, and we have three seasons, hot, hotter, and the surface of the sun. Uh, and so, But growing up in Boston, you know when certain seasons are starting and other seasons are ending. And, uh, and so we can, we can look on at what's happening in the world and say, this is a se- the season of his return is near. And, so, and, and I, I'm thinking that that's probably the best place to start. And because there's probably a million places you can start when it comes to the end of the world and all that kind of stuff. But how do we know that we're living in the last days, right? I mean, I think that's an important, uh, an important place to begin. How do we know we are living in the last days? Uh, are we just kind of interpreting that? How, how, how could we know? And I want to start uh, with the words of Jesus, which is always a good place to start. Uh, when Jesus is, if I can set the scene for you, Jesus is with his disciples there in the temple and he's leaving the temple, and, and his disciples are showing them, look at all this amazing stuff about the temple. and this, It's an incredible building, and um, there, there, was the, 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 um, uh, there was this saying in, in the ancient world that says, if you've never seen uh, Herod's temple, you have never seen a beautiful building. And so what they were doing is they were showing all of this stuff, and look at the temple, look at all this stuff, and, uh, and here's what Jesus says. And so Jesus says, hey, all this is going to be knocked down. And they're like, whoa, and, When is that going to happen, and when will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Like, when are you, you say you're going to go and that you're coming back, when will all these things be? And here's Jesus' response. It's in your notes in uh, Matthew 24. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. And one of the things that I want to share with you that I think is so important is that we've actually put every verse that we're going to cover uh, in your outline. Sometimes, if we're going through a book of the Bible, um, I'll have you bring your Bible so that you can look at the actual uh, verses in the book that we're studying through, like if we did 1 Peter the First Peter verses aren't in there, but every other verse that we cover is. But in this message, we wanted to give you everything that we were going to look at so that you have kind of a comprehensive, um, really, study that you can, you know, look at later and all that. So how, do you, so how do we know that? All these things are the beginning of SARS. Here's what I want to do as we talk about living in the last days. I want to answer that question. But I want to do that by looking at three countries. That's what I want to do. Three countries in the Middle East is what I want to spend our time focusing on. Uh, this, this afternoon now. Um, and so here's the first one, if you're taking notes. I want to talk about Israel. I want to talk about Syria. I want to talk about Iran. Those are the three countries. We're going to talk about Russia, too, but they, that gets a little, that's a little bonus. Um, so let's talk about Israel. Number one, if you're taking note, uh, Israel is back in their land. And uh, every generation... See, well, let me say it this way, because people might say, are we living in the last days? Well, didn't every generation think that they were living in the last days? And the reality is not every generation could say Jesus could come back today. Why? Because certain Bible prophecies had to be fulfilled for that to happen. If we were living in the 16th century, we couldn't have that idea of imminency, that Jesus could come back at any moment, that his return was imminent. Because Israel did not exist as a nation. And Israel is uh, the key to understanding Bible prophecy. All of Bible prophecy speaks of Israel as a nation, and after Israel was essentially wiped out in uh, the year 132 A.D., uh, and it was renamed uh, after there was a rebellion in um, in Jer- in Jerusalem. There was uh, the Caesar at that time destroyed Jerusalem, totally wiped it out, uh, kicked, made it illegal for two Jews to speak together in public, and. Uh, kicked everybody out, renamed Israel uh, Palestine after their arch nemesis from history, the Philistines. And so, uh, but it's from that moment until May 14th of 1948, there, Israel was not a nation. And so on May 14th, 1948, Israel was given its independence. And here's the uh, Palestine post, as you, as you see here, uh, that is uh, David Ben-Gurion was uh, made the, the um, prime minister of Israel at that time and uh, Israel was given its independence. After the horrors of World War II in Nazi Germany, the world community understood that this would never have happened. The horrors of World War II had, uh, Israel had its own homeland. So when the people of Israel were given their own land, it was an important Bible prophecy that was fulfilled on that day. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, can, can a nation be born in a day? And we saw that take place in, uh, Israel on May 14th of 1948. But let me read you this passage from Ezekiel 34, where uh, God says this through Ezekiel about Israel. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will search for, I, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd searches for his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out of the nations and gather them out of the countries and I will bring them to their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel and in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. In, um, in the year 70 AD, there was another rebellion in Israel. There was a lot of rebellions. People claiming to be the Messiah, gathering a group of people and then trying to break off the political yoke of the Roman Empire and then the Roman Empire would get upset and come in. Uh, and the way that Rome would keep the peace of what was called in that time the Pax Romana, which meant the Roman peace. And so what they would do is, and they would say, you will be peacefully uh, overseen by us or we will crush you with our military might. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, they brought in, in 70 AD, after another rebellion in Israel, uh, Rome sent in what was, what was this fierce group, which is called the Roman 10th Legion, and they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, uh, and, and they were, Jews were forced to leave. And 70 A.D. marks what's called the Diaspora. The Diaspora means the scattering, where Jews were scattered throughout all the earth. And from that time up until 2010, just a couple years ago, there were more Jews living outside of Israel than inside of Israel. Um, in 1918, there were 85,000 Jewish people living in what was called what it, today is called Israel. Uh, today, there's something like 7.9 million Jews uh, people living in Israel. There's more Jewish people living in Israel now than at any other time uh, in, in, in history. And this is all part of God bringing the Jewish people back together. Now, here's why this is so important because um, there has never been in the history of the known world a people group who have maintained their national identity beyond three generations without a homeland. There, there's never been. I mean, there have been cultures in the past, but have ceased to exist because there have been no, uh, th- there's been no homeland to maintain their national identities. So there, was, uh, there were empires, of the, huge empires. The Assyrian Empire was huge. They conquered the known world at the time, but you've never met an Assyrian because the Assyrians were conquered by the Babylonians, and then they ceased to exist because they no longer had a national homeland. The Bible, there's all these people that lived in, in the regions around of Israel. You know, there were the Hittites and the Canaanites. You never met a Hittite or a Canaanite. So the Hittites are gone. The Canaanites are gone. The Ammonites are gone. The Uptites, well, there's a few of those still around. Um, the Uptites and the flashlights are still hanging out. But, uh, but most of those guys, are, they're gone. Why? Because there have been no, there's no national, uh, there's no homeland for them to maintain their national identity. Now, you've probably met an Egyptian, You've probably met a Libyan. You've probably met an Ethiopian. Why? Because even though these are biblical countries that are mentioned, they still to this day have a homeland attached to their national identity. And so when a group of people loses their homeland, it's only uh, three centuries at the most before they are uh, gone. They begin to intermarry with other people, and so then their national identity is gone. Israel went 1,900 years without a homeland and somehow were able to keep their national identity until they were brought back into the land. And, and so what happens? Let me read you this passage from uh, the book of Ezekiel, uh, again, chapter 36. He, sa- uh, he says, Son of man, uh, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight, which is very picturesque. And uh, so I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered among the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people. Yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations. Where they had gone, therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name that, uh, that you, the name you have profaned among them, then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord. When I am proved holy through you, before their eyes, for I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. And this is the very thing that we see happening in the land of Israel is the Jews t- being taken from all across the globe coming back to the land of Israel, that Jews are returning to Israel and Israel is flourishing and prospering. now why is that important? it's important because Jesus said this, it's in your notes. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, you can know his return is near right at the door. You see, now why is this important? Why is Jesus saying? He's talking about, in Matthew 24, all the things that are going to happen in, in relation to his return. And he says, when you see the fig tree blossoming, you know that my return is, is near at the very door. Now... The fig tree in the Bible is the national symbol of Israel. So he's not just picking the fig tree out of of the air. He's saying, when you see the fig tree, when you see Israel blossoming, you know that my return is near. Israel has come back into their land, become a nation, and they are flourishing and prospering in the land given to them by God. You may not realize this, but Israel is one of the leading exporters of fruit and vegetables in the world. Israel, 95% of the fruit and vegetables that Israel produces, uh, that they eat, are produced in the land of Israel, which we're going to show you a map in just a minute. You're going to see how small Israel is compared to the rest of the Middle East. It's it's so minuscule compared to the rest of the Middle East, but they are flourishing. Uh, Israel is the Silicon Valley of the Middle East when it comes to technological innovation. They are the number one exporter of diamonds and precious metals in uh, the in, in in the in that area. And so when he and so Jesus says, when you see Israel prospering, you know that my coming is near even at the door. And so are we living in the last days? Absolutely. The question is, are we ready? That's really what it comes down to. Are, are, are we living like he's really, like he's really coming back? It Reminds me, I, I used to, when I was in high school, I used to work at this hoagie shop, kind of like a cheesesteak place. And uh, one day we, our boss had left and he said he was gone for the rest of the day. And so that meant that we were not going to be working very hard. And so uh, we decided that instead of uh, making the orders that were coming in for delivery, we decided to play poker and so uh, we were playing poker, and all the orders were coming in so every time the phone rang, someone would take the order, we would put it up, and then we would keep playing and Then uh, we kept playing this went on for a little while, and then we heard a slam at the door and it was uh, Paul who was our who was our boss, and uh, he was supposed to be uh, in in Maryland at the time and because uh, he, he was leaving and Anyway, he came back because apparently he forgot something. And uh, to say he was upset would really be understating the situation. He started freaking out, throwing pots and pans. He threatened to fire all of us if we didn't get our act together. And um, after that day, right, he would leave us because he'd say, i got to go do something else. And he would say this, I'm leaving. But I will be back when you least expect it. And he would. He would do that. He would leave. And then uh, one day... Uh, I, I wasn't working, but I was hungry and I was driving by. So I went in and I was going to make myself some mozzarella sticks and not pay for them. Uh, and so I made myself the mozzarella sticks. And as I was leaving, he walked in and he's like, Bobby, what are you doing? And I'm like me, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, uh, how are you? You know? And I didn't really know what to say. And then, uh, my friend Drew was there and Drew and I are still friends to this day. And, uh, he was there and, um, Drew was kind of managing the whole operation while he was gone. And, uh, he said, "You know, I know you made those cheese sticks, and I know you didn't pay for them." And I'm like, "Okay, but how did you know?" He said, Cause "I was I was across the street watching you with my binoculars, and I kid you not—I mean, this is how freaky this guy was." And uh, so that was the whole thing. Like we had no idea if we were being watched because he could come back at any moment. So this is—and by the way, he made Drew pay for the cheese stick, so I appreciated that. Um, So, all right. So we know that we're living in the last days. We know we could come back at any moment. We know it's right at the door. So there's a way that we've got to live. So let's move, if we can, from talking about Israel. Let's talk a little more current events. Let's talk about Syria, if we can. Uh, If you're taking notes, we talk about Syria. It says uh, in your notes that their destruction is foretold. Now, let me give you a a map of Syria, because I want to focus on the area where Syria and Israel meet. Um, Now, uh, this is the, uh, this is Israel. By the way, some people don't realize this area of the West Bank um, where a lot of the problems of Ramallah, this is an area that comes up in, uh, in the news a lot it's where there's a lot of problems. But this area right here, I mean, this, people talk about, you know, Israel occupying this area. This area right here of the Middle East where the West Bank is, this is only eight miles wide. And so this is what we're talking about, that this is not a big country. But the uh, Israel and Syria do not have good relations. Because of this area right up here, that's called the Golan Heights. Uh, the Golan Heights are a mountainous region. Uh, this is the Sea of Galilee, just to kind of give you an idea. About 90% of Jesus' miracles took place uh, around uh, the area of Galilee. And so the Golan Heights really bump up right against the, uh, right against the Sea of Galilee. Uh, I had the, the privilege of spending an afternoon on, uh, on the Golan Heights. In fact, I, have, I should have brought a picture of it. I have a picture of it at home and uh it is a syrian gunner one of these things you sit in it and it's a it's a machine gun uh that would from the golan heights you can actually see down to the sea of galilee and i mean this is where people they would actually shoot from the top of the golan heights down into israel when uh syria was occupying uh the 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 golan heights now they were doing this until 1967 when there was something that was called the six-day war now let me give you this is the let me give you a little quick history lesson, okay, if I can. Uh, in June 5th, 1967, three nations, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria, all decided that they were going to attack Israel. As you can see, they are; all, these are all the nations surrounding Israel. And uh, if, can we go to the next slide? I just want to show you how small. Look at Syria, pretty big. Jordan, pretty big. Egypt, pretty big. Compared to the size of Israel, not big at all. But the all three of these nations decided that they were going to push Israel into the Mediterranean Sea. They were going to wipe out Israel. And so they did a preemptive strike to destroy the country of Israel. Well, un- amazingly, in what in Israel they say is a modern-day miracle, Israel somehow defeated all three of these nations in six days, uh, in what's called the Six-Day War. And what they, not only did they defeat these nations, but they actually, uh, from Israel... Uh, or Israel took this area right here, which is in Egypt, which is called the Negev. Uh, this is the—I know it's a little bit low, but this is the Red Sea right around here. They took this, what's called the Sinai Peninsula. They took this from Egypt. They took Jerusalem from Jordan because even though Israel had become a nation in 1948, uh, Jordan uh, or Jerusalem was under Jordanian control, and so they took Jerusalem from the Jordanians, and then they took the Golan Heights from Syria. Now, in 19... So there was hostility because these people got their rear ends handed to them, if I can say that. Uh, you know, and I say that, of course, in the biblical sense, um, if there is such a thing. <clears throat> but they got all these guys got... Not only did they get defeated, but they got land taken from them, and Israel gained land as a, as a result of this six-day war. In 1979... President Carter brokered peace between Egypt and Israel. And the price for peace was this Sinai Peninsula. And so what Israel did was they gave up the Sinai Peninsula, which, by the way, is all desert. There is nothing there. There's no natural resources. Um, there's Mount Sinai. That's it. But So it's a tourist attraction. But other than that, that there was nothing there of uh, you know, natural uh, value. No oil. There's nothing there. So they gave that back to the Egyptians. And it was it allowed the Egyptians to save face, uh, you know, within the international community, and that's what started. If you've ever heard this phrase, what's called "land for peace," that's what began this whole process. So now, so the reason why Syria and Israel don't have peace is because Syria says, "Well, you gave the Egyptians the Sinai Peninsula. We want the Golan Heights back." And Israel has said, "You're not getting the Golan Heights back." Uh, that makes us strategically vulnerable to have a, a, a high position looking down on our civilians. So we're not going to give that up. Well, uh, the Jordanians didn't get Jerusalem back, but they made a deal. This is about 1995, where uh, if you can see here, can I go back to the other map if I could, please? Thank you. Uh, you'll see the Sea of Galilee right here and uh, the Golan Heights right next to that. You'll see the Sea of Galilee. And so what happened with the Jordanians is that they said, well, you know, you whooped us and so you can keep jerusalem but we want so many millions of gallons every year of water from the uh, jordan river and so uh and from uh, not from the jordan river from the sea of galilee and so they agreed on that and so it was more like water for peace and as a friend of mine who is a uh, retired lieutenant colonel from the israeli defense force says when you live in the desert water is life and so them getting water and they said that's no problem so they gave them the water so now uh, for almost the last 20 years, there's been peace between Jordan and Israel. And there's still hostility between Syria and, Isra- and Israel because of this uh, because of this issue with the Golan Heights. Now, we're going to talk about how Russia plays into that with the Golan Heights in a few minutes. But um, so, what's up with Syria today? Why is this something that is of uh, biblical significance? Because there are prophecies related to. Syria in the Bible, specifically. In fact, we're going to look at one in Isaiah chapter 17. And what, what happens is, is that uh, the capital of Syria is Damascus. Uh, Damascus is a famous city in the Bible because uh, some of you that have read the Bible, you know this, that the Apostle Paul was converted. Uh, you know, he was a uh, rabbi who was just dead set on wiping out Christianity. He was on his way to find some Christians and imprison them and uh, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And so he was on the Damascus road. Jesus appears to him. says, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you that I'm persecuting you? I, you know, I'm Jesus. And, G- and Paul was converted at that moment. And the guy who was the gravest opponent, opponent of Christianity now becomes the greatest evangelist for Christianity that the world has ever seen because of that moment on the road to Damascus in, in Syria. So, but here's the thing about Damascus that, to me, I find so interesting and people that are interested in Bible prophecy find so interesting is that Damascus is one of the world's oldest cities. But Damascus has never been destroyed. You say, well, why is that significant? Because one of the, you know, there are different cities like Jericho is one of the oldest cities. In fact, some say Jericho uh, could be the world's oldest city. Babylon is uh, one of the world's oldest cities. Jerusalem is a very old city. Um, but all of these cities have been destroyed multiple times uh jerusalem if you even just a a cursory reading of the bible you'll see that jerusalem is wiped out rebuilt wiped out rebuilt wiped out rebuilt nehemiah builds the walls and they get you know knocked down again and it's like it's like this you know ever-ending never-ending lego situation where stuff just gets you know destroyed and then and then rebuilt but but uh, throughout history damascus has never been destroyed it's been conquered uh, by different different groups of people, but it's never been destroyed. And so, but the Bible actually says in the book of Isaiah 17 that God is going to judge Damascus because of its treatment of Israel. Uh, it's going to judge uh, Syria, and it's going to actually completely wipe out the city of Damascus. Now, here's what it says: it's, it's the whole chapter. I'm just going to give you the first couple of verses. You can read the rest later. It says, "The message came to me. This is Isaiah 17 concerning Damascus. Look, the city of Damascus will disappear." And it will become a heap of ruins. The town of Eruar will be deserted. Flocks will graze in the streets and lie down undisturbed with no one to chase them away. Now, how does something like that happen? How does uh, something... Not only does, does it say that it's going to be destroyed, but it's going to be destroyed and completely uninhabited. Now, uh, I want to play a couple of scenarios out. Once again, I'm not making predictions. I'm saying, how could something like this happen as, we, as it relates to current events? Um... Scenario number one involves a, a military strike by the United States or the U.S. and allied forces, um, for a reason like chemical weapons being, being used, uh, in Syria. Now, the problem with that, and if, if we can talk current events for a moment, which this kind of plays out scenario number two a little bit more, which I'll tell you about in a moment, um, chemical weapons, I think we'd all agree are not good, especially if they're using them on, on their own people, um. The question is, who gets pow- the, who gets control of these weapons if U.S. or allied forces come in and topple al-Assad's government? Now, what we're learning about, and and uh, the media, unfortunately, has been, it's starting to turn, but the media has been talking about these rebels like they're Paul Revere and the Continental Congress. And these are freedom fighters who are trying to, you know, they're, they're, they don't want to be oppressed or whatever. What we're learning uh, about more, and this is starting to come out now in, in the, in the mainline, mainstream media, is that these freedom fighters are actually, uh, uh, many of these freedom fighters are actually linked to Al-Qaeda. And so, now let's think through about how this scenario plays out. If the U.S. now decides they go and bomb Damascus, fulfill this prophecy, by the way, and destroy Damascus, what happens if there are uh, these chemical weapons? And so now we go in, we destroy these... Um, we, just, we destroy uh, the, the existing government that's there, and this other group, these rebels, come in and take over. Now we have given... So once again, these are all... You know, our president has told us this is not boots on the ground. These are airstrikes, drones, that sort of thing. They're going to come in, bomb where we believe these chemical weapons to be, and then we're out. So here's what happens. Now think about this. We go in and we do this, and now we have essentially turned over this country of, uh, of Syria to the terrorists behind the 9-11 attacks. And if there are, you know, chemical weapons that still exist, we have now put them in the hands of people who hate Israel and hate the United States, which now leads me to this second possible scenario, which is that involves Israel doing a preemptive strike on Syria. Uh, if, because, listen, if the Israelis know there is no love between Israel and Syria, especially with this Golan Heights issue. But that is where these two countries meet. And if they, if Syria is using chemical weapons on their own people, Israel understands that it's only a matter of time before they will turn and begin to try to use them on Israel. And if Al-Qaeda now gains power in Syria, they will have no problem now turning and using these weapons on Israel. And Israel is not going to wait forever to see if the United States acts. And so, and and what, uh, you know, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu publicly is saying that uh you know he supports the you know democratic process in the united states and we'll see what happens privately what's being said and what's leaking out is uh benjamin netanyahu saying that and and the knesset which is the uh the knesset is essentially like um israel the israeli parliament um they are saying that israel is more alone than ever so that's what they're saying uh privately. And so if, they're going, if, they're, if Israel is going to be safe, then it's going to take Israel to act. And so the understanding is, is that there's going to have to be some preemptive action by Israel to keep this scenario from playing out. And once again, so the idea of, well, how could Damascus be destroyed? I mean, it's never been destroyed. Listen, it's a, something as simple as this that would cause forces to come into Syria that would cause it uh, to, to be destroyed. Now, if this happens... Uh, I think one of the things that we're seeing play out in the news is this very interesting relationship between Russia and Syria. And uh, now they're, you know, apparently Vladimir Putin is like the best friends of of the Syrian people. And why is that? And I want to talk about uh, Russia as they relate to Iran. I want to talk about Russia as they relate to uh, Syria. But I want to focus a little bit on Syria, uh, on uh, Iran if we can. And that brings us to point number three. Uh, As we talk about Iran and uh, their clock is ticking. So let's talk about that if we can. Um, According to the Bible, there is going to be a, that Iran, Russia, several other countries are going to actually create a coalition that uh, invades and attacks Israel. I put it in your notes. It's in Ezekiel uh, chapter 38. And uh, I want to focus on this for a minute. Listen to what it says. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog, of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against them, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your draws, and lead you out with your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, and a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia ethiopia and libya are with them all of them uh, with shield and helmet gomer uh, with all its troops the house of togarma from the far north and all its troops and many people are with you and thus says the lord this is skipping to verse 10 uh, thus says the lord god on that day it shall come to pass that your thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan you will say i will go up against a wall uh, of a land of unwalled villages and i will go to a peaceful people who dwell in safety, and all of them dwelling without walls, and neither bars nor gates, and take plunder, to uh, to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited, and against a people gathered from the nations, who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell in the midst of the land, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, have you come to take plunder, have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver or gold, to take away livestock and goods, and to take great plunder? Now, if you pause there and, and give, give me your attention, uh, we talk about all these countries, um, and you say, well, I, I've never heard of Rosh, I've never heard of Gog, Magog, Meshach, or Tubal. Who are these people? Now, the names have changed, but the areas where they inhabit has not changed. And so, uh, while Russia does not, no longer go by the name Rosh, Uh, it's still the same area. So I'm going to show you a map, if we can, of these different areas. You see Rosh here, uh, which is essentially this area north of the uh, Black Sea, which is what we would call uh, today would be uh, the former Soviet Union and and Russia. Um, This also includes, uh, we talk about Gog and Magog. These are the areas of the former Soviet Union. You've got uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. Uh, Turkmenistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, and then you've got uh, parts of Afghanistan there as well. And uh, by the way, we talk about, you say, you know, Gog and Magog. I mean, come on. Is that, is that for real, all these countries? I want you to look at, uh, you see where Magog is? If you ever go to China someday and you decide you want to go to the Great Wall of China, by the way, they don't call it the Great Wall of China in China. They may call it to you because you're a tourist. But the, the, in China, it is called the Wall of Magog. The reason why it's called the Wall of Magog is because it was built to keep this area out of China, and so um, this is just it, go, it. just goes back that far to when uh, that was what that area was known. It was known as Magog. Uh, Rush is a reference uh, to Russia, Meshach, and Tubal. You'll see there it's a reference to um, to what now is called uh, now is modern day Turkey. Uh, Persia is uh, you'll see that that's Iran, and um, You'll see Put, uh, which is uh, Libya. Uh, Modern translations uh, call it Libya, but it really includes Algeria as well. Um, Kush is uh, Ethiopia. Sometimes in in newer translations, it translates it Ethiopia. That's actually, it's the area of Sudan as well uh, that's that's mentioned there. And um, now, the thing that's important to note, all of these countries, all of these countries hate Israel. Now, let's talk about why. And here's what God says in Ezekiel 38 is he says that I'm going to put a hook in your jaw and I'm going to pull you down to now go and invade this area this that's prospering and dwelling in safety. Now, why is that? Uh, there's two reasons that these areas are going to converge and try to attack Israel. And there's two reasons. One is economic, the other religious. This is one of those moments where now, uh, this is, uh, if, if, you know, this is where we're going to go 2.0, you know, or, uh, you know, this is, We've talked, you know, intro to this. We're going to go now. This is more graduate level. If we can talk about this for a moment. Um, Israel is a very wealthy country, right? We talked two reasons, economic, religious, talk economic first. Israel is a very wealthy nation. They have water, which many countries do not have in the Middle East. They also have recently, over the last two years, have recently discovered that they have billions of dollars worth of oil that's been uh, discovered just off the coast uh, of, of Israel. Uh, to say nothing of the minerals that are found in the Dead Sea. Uh, if you ever come with us to Israel, we're going to do a trip here in the next couple of years um, if the world doesn't explode first. But uh, if, if it doesn't, we're going we're to make a trip to Israel. Because uh, I don't know if you know this, but we're gonna, we'll go to the Dead Sea. But you don't actually swim in the Dead Sea. It's, it's very difficult to swim in the Dead Sea. Uh, I have a video um, of uh, me and, and the team, the, the group that we led in, uh, in there. And we're all trying to swim, but we can't. Uh, you can't actually really go underwater in, in the Dead Sea because it just pushes you out. So what you do is you actually just float in the Dead Sea. So you, just, you, know, you don't even need you know, one of those little tubes. You just, it, the mineral content is so high that it just pushes you to the top. And so you can just kind of hang out and uh, float around in, in the Dead Sea. Now, I will tell you this, getting that minerals, those minerals off of you after you swim in the Dead Sea, now that is uh, a serious task. Uh, you'll spend the next couple days like, with like a film on you because you were in the Dead Sea. Um, so it's something good to do once. And, uh, and then you're like, hey, you should go in the Dead Sea. I'll watch you and video you because uh, I don't want that all over me. Uh, because what ha- but listen, ju- the mineral, just the mineral content in the Dead Sea is, is valued at trillions of dollars. It is just, it's so rich in minerals that that could be sold, turned into products. Uh, so there are economic reasons to invade Israel. There are also religious reasons. Just about every country that we mentioned that's going to go into Israel uh, are predominantly Muslim. And the Islamic world is no fan of Israel. Now, let me explain why. Uh, most of us have heard the term jihad. And uh, we, we, th- we, we think of it in maybe just a cursory sense that it means holy war or whatever. But th- there is something deeper than that. Um, jihad is not just a term that, that means war for Islam. Jihad is a philosophy. It's a philosophy of how Islam progresses. Uh, Because the goal of jihad is to establish Islamic authority all over the world. Uh, You know, Islam teaches that Allah is the only authority in all political systems should be based on uh, Islamic teaching. And so, um, Muslims also believe that any land that was once occupied by Islam remains islamic land forever and if it is lost then it must be reconquered and that is a huge thing to understand because when the muslims controlled israel when they took over israel during the time of the crusades and later lost it they firmly believe that it must be reconquered can we go back to the picture of the temple mount um this is the temple mount uh as some of you know this is um it's about 40 acres of uh of land there in, uh, the Temple Mount. This is, uh, what's called the Dome of the Rock. Some people call it the Dome of the Rock Mosque. It's actually not a mosque. It's more of a museum. There's just a rock inside, and there's a whole story to that that I don't have time to tell you, but we will talk about that some other day. There is a mosque on the Temple Mount over here on this side, which is called the El-Aqsa Mosque, which means, uh, the, the, uh, mosque or the, do- the Mosque of the Edge, and, uh, we'll talk about that some other day. Uh, this picture, this is what's called here the Kidron Valley. And uh, if you uh, read the Gospels, uh, you'll read about the Kidron Valley. This picture is taken from the Mount of Olives. And so there's the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley that goes down, and then there's the Temple Mount. Uh, there's, And so what you have here, the reason I bring this up is because uh, people say, well, what, how did this structure, there used to be a temple here. The temple got destroyed, and there's all kinds of... Uh, theories about where the temple actually stood uh, i think the best evidence is um that the temple actually stood over here towards the corner because uh well i can't even talk about that this is the east gate this is the east gate this is a smaller door and uh someday we'll talk about all this fun stuff and uh you know not today um now i bring all this up because this dome uh, the dome of the rock is actually an eight-sided building which is not islamic architecture it's actually ancient christian architecture And so, when the... uh, And over the years, this has been... uh, Every time that it gets conquered by someone, it gets turned into whatever faith uh, they have. But this was actually built by Christians because it's eight-sided. According to the Bible, eight is the number of new beginnings. And so, all Christian architecture from, uh, really, the second and third century all have eight sides. The Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so, there's this whole idea of, you know, what happens um, on the eighth day and all this. And so there's this kind of brand newness that, that takes place. And so everything in Christian architecture has eight sides. And so when this was actually a Christian church until the time of the Crusades, when uh, the, um, this was conquered by uh, the Ottoman Turks, and they then took this over. There was a cross up here. They knocked it down, put the crescent moon on there, and then this became... A, uh, this became the, uh, the Dome of the Rock, and we'll talk about the rock some other time. Um, but this is kind of the whole, the, the, the idea, and I tell you this because, uh, the, because they, while, while uh, Muslims still maintained control of the Temple Mount, and that is still under the control of, of Muslims when the, um, when the uh, Jewish people came in and t- retook Jerusalem, they stopped short of the Temple Mount because they had said, if we, if we take the, the Temple Mount, the all of the Islamic world is going to converge upon Israel, and uh, we're not ready for that. So they stopped short of the Temple Mount. They've allowed uh, Muslims to maintain control over the Dome of the Rock, even though now uh, it, Jerusalem is under the control of, uh, of the uh, Israeli government. So now, here's the thing that's important. What's important to note here is that uh, the hatred for Israel that all these countries have is religious in nature. And that's one of the things that sometimes gets missed. It's like, well, why do these people hate Israel so much? It's because you have to understand that this is all, it's really all fueled by a religious philosophy that says this land was once controlled uh, under Muslim control and then we lost it and now we have to regain it. And um, this is, there's uh, one important uh, Islamic teaching that's, that's important for us to note that... Um, Fuels all of this uh, in what was called uh, the twelfth Imam. The twelfth Imam is kind of, in some ways, it's a very crude illustration, uh, uh, illustration, but it's it's almost in there in some ways like uh, the Islamic version of the second coming, and that is um, the the twelfth Imam. These there have been eleven successors to Muhammad, and ele- you know there's twelve of them. Eleven of them have been revealed. Uh, in 869, the twelfth Imam was revealed, and he was taken. And then uh, the, the story is, the prophecy is, so to speak, that he will reappear at, at, at some time and bring justice and peace by establishing Islam throughout the world. Now, here's the important thing to note. And I put this in ver- I wanted you to read verse 13 in Ezekiel 38. So I think it's important because it says that Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish and all their young lions will say, have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered in your army to take booty, to carry away silver or gold, to take livestock and goods to great plunder? That, but the, uh, all of these countries, Sheba and Dedan, uh, refers to the area of Saudi Arabia. Um, the, it also uh, Tarshish is a refer- reference to the United Kingdom. And once again, this is all going back to um, you know if you remember uh, Jonah, he was supposed to go to um, you know I, I want you to go preach to, the, to these to these people. He didn't want to go, um, and so what happened? He, he said he, he went. To, he said I'm going to go to Tarshish. He's instead of going. Uh, to preaching to these these horrible people that he thought i 'm going to go to the other side of the world to Tarshish, which is essentially uh, the United Kingdom, and uh, what we would call it today the young lions, many prophecy buffs would say um, is the young lions references the um, the offspring of these of these nations and if if it is the offspring of England, uh, then it would, could be a reference some say to the United States um, and, but according to the Bible they 're going to huff and puff about all these nations converging to destroy Israel, but they aren't going to do anything. Now, there, see, 30 years ago, 50, 40, 50 years ago, um, is, uh, the United States has always been Israel's strongest supporter. And anybody who wanted to go and, um, and wanted to invade Israel, all the United States had to do was flex its muscles, and everybody would back off. But see, the world community has seen... Uh, our weaknesses as a country. They see that the United States has more than 16 trillion dollars in debt, can't afford another war. They know that the United St- the, the American people are tired of war. Uh, the previous Iranian president Mahmoud Ahmadinejad had said those exact words that there is no way that any American president is going to be able to talk the American people into another war. And not only that, but the American the uh, America as a nation can't afford another war. And so he that's that's where and he just left office, but. Um, His whole thing was, there's no way that uh, this is going to even... um, The America is not even going to be a factor in this. Um, Now, what's the connection between Iran and Russia right now? We see it in Ezekiel 38, but in in current events, what is the connection? Well, there's a couple. One is, uh, Iran is thinking of joining an organization called the the CSTO. The CSTO stands for the Collective Security Treaty Organization. Uh, that organization, is, what's interesting about that organization is every country that we've talked about that's mentioned in Ezekiel 38 is part of this organization. Um, except, for, uh, and the other thing is, every country um, is primarily and predominantly Muslim. Um, Russia wouldn't consider itself a Muslim nation, although a great majority of their population is. Um, the, num- the other thing that's important is, right now Iran is observing uh, if they decide to join and want to attack Israel, this treaty will now cause all of them to, uh, to be involved. So another reason that I, uh, Russia is working with the Iranians is because Russia is in desperate need of money. And Iran has tons of oil reserves, which they sell to most of the world, and so they are more than happy to spend their money um, at the store of the Russians. And um, I, I just read uh, on, in Friday's Jerusalem Post, The Jerusalem Post is uh, the Israeli version of the New York Times, um, which you can read online. They have an English version. And um, in the Jerusalem Post on Friday, two days ago, uh, they they just reported that that Russia sold Iran, or actually Russia just netted a profit of $800 million from the Iranians uh, because they just sold them these uh, S-300 anti-craft surface-to-air missiles. And uh, Russia has also agreed to sell these same missiles to Syria. Uh, But have told, and and of course the uh, Israelis objected, and then Russia told the Israelis, well, hey, we will cancel the order um, if you agree to let us put Russian peacekeepers on the Golan Heights. And so there's this, this whole kind of strategic move to be able to be poised to now invade Israel. Obviously Israel's not excited about that possibility, and so they've rejected that. But probably the biggest thing that's important to note is that Russia has been assisting Iran in its nuclear ambitions. Um, They are building, right now, part of this S-300 missile deal is them building another nuclear reactor in Iran. And, uh, you know, Senator John McCain said this uh, about a year ago or so. He said there's only one scenario worse than military action in Iran, and that is a nuclear-armed Iran. And uh, these are a group of people that hate Israel. And this visceral... Uh, disdain that they have for for Israel is religious in nature. But why is all this happening? And so let's answer that. I put this in your notes at the the end of Ezekiel 38. You can read it later. But here's the point that God makes at the end of this chapter. He's doing all of this so that the world will know that there is one God. And it's Israel's God. And And he says, and all of this is going to happen so that Israel will turn back to him. Because what a lot of people think is that Israel is this extremely religious society israel is largely uh, about 90 percent secular so it is not a very religious um not a very religious society it is a secular uh it is a secular society and but this this event is one that god is going to use uh to for the people of israel to come back to him now here's the point all right i've said all the technical stuff i'm going to say let's kind of Let's, let's talk personal for a minute if we can, as we close. Um, right now, there's nothing stopping this stuff from happening. There's nothing stopping it from happening. They're, all of the countries are ally, aligned together. They're all motivated with the same kind of visceral hate for Israel. And our country is really, in many ways, powerless from stopping it to ha- from, from happening. You know, it, um, here's what the Apostle Paul would say to you and me today. He would say this in Romans chapter 13. He says, And do this, understanding the present time, that the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. You see, the reason this didn't happen 200 years ago, um, all these signs, it it didn't happen because it it wasn't time yet. You see, maybe, maybe I can explain it this way. If you've ever taken your kids... Uh, to Disney World, and I'm guessing that most of us have. We've made the trip from here, the Miami area, to, to Disney. Uh, that you, you see what happens. Have you noticed this? That there aren't that many signs for Disney in Dade County. There aren't that many signs for Disney in Broward County. There aren't that many signs for Disney World in Palm Beach County. But there's something that happens as you get a little closer. Then you get to something called Yeehaw Junction. I don't even know what that is. But I'm like, I'm staying away from that thing. I don't like saying Yeehaw and I'm very suspicious of people who do. So, I keep going, but you know what happens after you kind of but you get to Iha Junction and you know you're more than halfway there. And but then you get a little the closer that you get to Orlando, you know you know what you find is that the closer you get to Orlando, the number of signs increase. Because when you get past or so you get to like um, you know, Indian River County, Martin County, you get to all this and then you see like one sign, "Hey, Disney World's 100 miles away." and uh, you see a picture of a Disney character, then you don't see anything for a while. Then you get a little closer and you see one more sign. But then the closer that you get, 50 miles, 40 miles, 30 miles, 20 miles, the signs increase. The size of the signs increase. Everything is pointing now to the fact that you are now getting close to this kingdom that you've been looking for. And listen, the same thing is true when it comes to God's kingdom. The closer that we get to the coming of the king, The more the signs will increase in frequency, and the more the signs will increase in intensity. You see, the question isn't, um, "Boy, that's so interesting," and how it ties up. No, the the, all of this comes down to the the question of this. It comes down to the question of, "Are you ready for His return?" This is this is not just to be. uh, This message was not just to be an exercise in you know uh, intellectual. history but instead this is really supposed to be all of these things happening that we can grasp with our minds is really supposed to realign our hearts to what it is that God is doing you see you know Pastor Mark shared that verse behold um, in chapter 3 verse 1 first uh, John chapter 3 one, when we read it during worship he says well, behold what manner of love is this that we could be called children of God you know what 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 says? It says this. It says, and we do not know what it will be like when we see Him. But when we see Him, we will become like Him. And everyone who has this hope in Him, 1 John chapter 3 verse 3, everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, even as He is pure. See, that whole chapter is a reference that in 1 John we just read, that is a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. That everyone who has this hope in him that Jesus is coming back, that he would actually purify himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. That the whole idea of Bible prophecy would um, actually challenge us to then live the kind of life that we're supposed to live. I'm going to invite the band to come out here now as we close. Because the question becomes this. Jesus told this story in Matthew 24, as he's telling all the stuff that's going to happen when it comes to his return. And he says, um, he said these words. Let me read it to you. He said this. He says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of his servants and his household and gives them their food uh, at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. But I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked. And says to himself, my master is staying away for a long time. And then he proceeds to beat the servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day he does not expect. At an hour he's not aware of. And he will cut him into pieces and assign his place with the hypocrites. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, the challenge that we have from Jesus is this who is a wise and faithful servant. You see, sometimes we might think that this is a, well, this message is really just for, you know, uh, people who aren't Christians and you find out what's happening in the world and then, you know, it kind of like scares the hell out of you and then it's like, I'm going to come to Jesus because I'm so terrified. You know that this message primarily um, is for people who believe. Now, it can be to people who don't believe and I don't want to let you off the hook if you're here and you're not sure. But listen, this message primarily is for those of us who do believe. Who are in the place of saying, I mean, if I really believe that Jesus could come back and he's right at the very door, what kind of life should I be living? That first John verse that we talked about during worship, if if, if, if we really, we don't know what it's going to be like when he appears, but we know this, that when he appears, we're going to be like him. And whoever has this hope that he's coming back and that he could come back at any moment, purifies himself just as he jesus is pure and so maybe maybe this message is really given to us who are believers to to realign our lives to rethink about the things that we're doing and saying you know what what am i giving my life to what am i obsessing about am i obsessing about things am i giving things ultimate importance that i shouldn't be giving ultimate importance to are there things that I'm giving the top priority in my life that I'm saying, why in the world would I would I be doing that? Because the reality is, is that all those things are going to burn up. But this commitment to Jesus, to live the way that he wants me to live, these are the things that are going to last for time and for eternity. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to invite everyone to stand for a moment. And I want to give us a time of um, reflection, of of recommitment as we think through the expectation. Because I want to tell you something. The very best way to live, the very best way to live is to live in such a way that says, Jesus could come back today. You see, when I'm living in a way that says Jesus could come back today, I'm not focusing on all the stuff that doesn't matter. I'm not getting myself involved in the things that could derail me. Instead, what's happening is, I am now fixing myself the one thing that matters, to Jesus. I'm living my life for Jesus. I'm walking towards Jesus. My words, my actions are to Jesus. And see, we hear a message like this, that hey, Jesus is coming back. And we can say, hey, isn't that so cool? And then go out and live the way we want to live. But no, maybe a message like this is given. Not just to say, hey, Jesus is coming back. But hey, Jesus is coming back. And now it's time to wake up from the slumber because our salvation is now closer than when we first believed. That he's standing at the very door. And listen, maybe this is your moment. That maybe you've been here and you've been living. You've known God and you've been kind of living some other life. You've been walking your own way. And now is your time. God is speaking to you. God's trying to shake you up to say, Hey, I'm literally moving heaven and earth to let people know that I'm coming back and that maybe this is the time to say hey if God is moving heaven and earth that maybe this is my time to get my life right with him and so if you're deciding and saying hey I I need pastor I hear what you're saying and I need to to return to Jesus I need to give my life to Jesus I need to to come back to Jesus to see him do a work in me because I don't want to live this way anymore I don't want to act this way anymore. I don't want to feel this way anymore. Instead, I want to walk with him because I know he's coming back. And I want to live my life as though he's coming back today. I want to be ready for his return so that I'm not ashamed when he comes back. I want to live in the blessing of God, that I can experience the blessing of God right here, right now, and step into eternity walking with him. So here's what I want to do as we close. I want to give you an opportunity. If you say, I need to come back to him. I need to come to him. I'm going to invite you when the band begins to sing, that you come out of your seat and you meet me here in this place. And as you do, we're going to pray together and you're going to see God do a work in your life that, listen, now is the time to wake up from our slumber. Now is the time to say, God, I know what you're doing. I want my life to be right with you. This is your moment. Don't let it pass. He's moving heaven and earth to reach you. He says, draw close to me and I'll draw close to you. Now is your time to draw close to him. The band's going to sing. You come forward and meet me here. Mark.